0: Hey, good morning, Collective Church. Welcome to another one of our online services. I'm excited to be with you once again. Today, specifically, as we come to the conclusion of our Take Heart series, where Over the past few weeks, we've been jumping around various passages, specifically, for the most part, in the New Testament and the Gospels and the life of Jesus. This has been different than what we normally do, where we normally go through one set book of the Bible at a time, really verse by verse. And next week, we'll actually be returning back to that as we jump back to the Gospel of Mark. But today, like I just said, we're wrapping up our study of Jesus' words to people facing situations and emotions much like our own. In the midst of all that we've been through over the past few weeks, the question that might be running on on my mind and likely on yours as well is, what exactly are we feeling or experiencing in this moment? A helpful identification of what we're feeling and experiencing came from the Harvard Business Review a couple weeks back in a uh, post entitled, that discomfort you're feeling is grief. This article was a interview with the Los Angeles-based David Kessler. He is the world's foremost expert on the subject of grief. Written over six books on the subject, uh, counseling for uh, LAPD and, and various different um, – um, thing uh, uh, groups and people dealing with trauma and grief and loss around the world and this is not only his expertise but also comes from his own experience of witnessing a mass shooting as a child of losing his mother and and just a few years ago losing his 21 year old son unexpectedly and so he's writing on this moment that we're in from a uh, a perspective of not only experiencing grief and knowing what it is but also being the world's expert on it he he wrote this We're feeling a number of different griefs. We feel the world has changed, and it has. We know this is temporary, but it doesn't feel that way, and we realize that things will be different. Just as going to the airport forever is different than how it was before 9-11, and it is at this point at which they've changed. The loss of normalcy, the fear of economic toll, the loss of connection, this is hitting us and we're grieving collectively, he says. We're not used to this kind of collective grief in the air. And so as we think about what we are experiencing, how how is this for a happy start to the teaching? When we think about how we are experiencing this moment, David Kessler calls us to be attentive to the fact that what we're experiencing, what you and I are going through right now, is grief grief over the deaths either of people that we know or just the the sheer amount and toll the loss of life that we've seen sicknesses loss of work economic uncertainties the fear of the future prolonged periods of isolation this is a collective there's the pun there a collective grief that we're going through a shared burden a weight a sorrow trouble anguish distress and lament that we are all around the world going through a moment of collective grief. Particularly for Christians, this has turned into and been a season where for many of us, this collective grief has led to the felt presence of God going dim. What St. John of the Cross 1500 years ago referred to, or not 1500 years ago, in around the year 1500, 500 years ago, what he referred to as the dark night of the soul, the dark night of the soul. And so in this final week, of our Take Heart series, we're going to be turning our attention to this collective grief, to the dark night of the soul in one story. Uh, that that encapsulates one person's experience and Jesus's words to him in the midst of that. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 23, just verse 11 today, and I'm going to kind of be connecting to other parts in the surrounding chapters. But just for the sake of simplicity, we're just going to be in in 23 verse 11 today. So let's turn, uh, why don't we pray first, and then we'll bring our attention to Acts chapter 23. Uh, Father, it is uh, true that we are experiencing uh, so much in the midst of this moment. For many of us, it's grief. Uh, for many of us, it's grief, and we're still in the early stages of that, of denial, of, uh, uh, of, of believing that, that maybe there's more control that we have in this moment than we do. Wherever we're at, my prayer is today that you might invite us to hear Jesus' words to us that in the example that we see of the Apostle Paul here today, we might hear the good word that is needed for us in this time. your name we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 23, verse 11 begins by saying, The following night, just three words, the following night. But this, the following night is a loaded term. I mean, at the beginning of any TV show that you watch, they normally will have a previously on. This is connecting us to, it's its a recap of, 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 of pointing back to what's been happening. It's clear that we're coming into the middle of a story. And here in Acts chapter 23, we're not even coming into the middle of the story. We're actually coming towards the end of the book of Acts. We are in chapter 23 of 28. We're going back to the beginning of Acts, the explosive launch of that church after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the sending of his spirit to indwell his people as they witness and testify to the resurrection both through their lives and through their word. This has been what was going on. And as the book of Acts continues that church expands moves beyond Jerusalem throughout the rest of the world, it begins to follow one particular character, the apostle Paul. As he takes the news of the resurrected Messiah Jesus to not just the jewish people but the entire known world he's visiting all of these cities starting new little churches the new churches these new communities of jesus followers in new cities as we come back into chapter 21 uh, Paul, after all of his journeys, he comes back to the city of Jerusalem. He goes to visit the temple uh, to, to really, to honestly give his, his finances, give his money to the, to the church, to, to the temple, uh, that he even as a Christian is still Jewish. And so he still gives his uh, his, his tithes and offerings uh, to the temple. So he comes to do just that. But upon his visit to the temple, he becomes uh, surrounded by these Jewish leaders who begin to throw accusations on him of defiance defiling the temple, of overturning the law through his inclusion of non-Jews into the Jewish faith through the Messiah Jesus, of being able to worship God and not become Jews themselves through circumcision or observance of the Jewish law. They are so annoyed, and not just annoyed, but livid with Paul that they begin to not just throw... Um, accusations on him, but now a riot breaks out. Paul begins to get physically assaulted by the crowds, and this quickly uh, is disrupted when the Roman guard comes and separates everything, arrests Paul, and takes him with him. In chapter 22, you see us leading into 23, chapter 22, Paul gets jumped around from multiple trials before the Jewish and Roman leaders at these trials, suffering physical abuse and the neglect of his rights as a citizen. Back at the beginning of chapter 23 where we've been, Paul appears before the council and this angry dissension about what he's claiming as Jesus being the God of Israel in flesh who his gospel, his good news is available not just to Jews but to all people everywhere breaks into a violent riot and once again the roman guard for fear that paul is going to be torn into pieces is what it literally says they lock him in the barracks for 24 hours when we read the phrase the following night it is this whole story that has brought us to the following night paul being locked in the barracks by himself for 24 hours quite literally quarantined away from the crowds from his friends he is wounded physically he is isolated and he is facing his fears about what the future might have for him. And on one hand, we're not Paul in this situation, but this pandemic and the implications of it have brought many of us into maybe not the same depth of emotion, but the same emotions into a collective dark night of the soul. It's called the dark night of the soul. St. John of the Cross referred to it as such because it's, first, it's dark. It highlights the obscurity of the moment that we're in, that Paul, like us, we can't seem to see our way out of this one or what God seems to be up to because the experience that we're having, the situation that we're in seems to tell us that God is distant. It's referred to not just as dark, but this night as it's when the light goes dark and we don't know where we are or how we're going to get out of here. Some have described the darkened of the soul as a little death, that nothing we can do changes the experience in our situation that we're in. And that the experience in the situation that we're in brings about, like I just said a moment ago, the loss of light, the loss of the sensed presence of God with us. Mother Teresa of Calcutta referred to it as when her soul becomes, became like an ice block. New York pastor and author Pete Scazzaro refers to the dark night of the soul as the wall. It is the moment that our lives, we're going at a certain pace, and some experience, some moment, something happens where we hit a wall. We go through this on a personal scale, but over history, there have been these global walls, dark nights of the soul, where we all go through it together. It's what we're experiencing right now. And so in this phrase, the following night, uh, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, doesn't record for us what Paul was going through in his 24 hours of isolation. But I would just, let's let's use our imaginations here for a little bit, our our sanctified, God-given imaginations, to read slowly and just stop and think about what these past 24 hours held for the Apostle Paul. If psychology is any help to us, then Paul, like us, went through the first four stages of grief. These were identified by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. These these stages of grief, and what are they? What was Paul possibly going through, and what are we definitely going through in this moment? The first is denial. The first step of grief and loss is denial, where what we've gone through makes no sense to us. We are in a state of shock and denial. We are numbed. Paul likely was going through. He just can't believe this. I came to give my tithes and offerings. I came to be generous to these people. I, I, I still observe the, the the Jewish law, the Torah. I'm still practicing kosher. I'm just not placing that on Gentiles because they're not Jewish. But that doesn't mean that they're not included. I, I don't understand why this is going on. It first is a denial. For many of us, this looked like a you know the denial with COVID nineteen at the beginning that this can't be happening. Early on, and even this is continuing in some today, that you know the flu kills more people. This is just business as usual. We're not buying into the hype. It's a denial of what was going on in the face of the wall approaching. Denial then makes way as we settle into the reality to anger, where those bottled emotions that were where that denial was coming from now begin to overflow, and rage becomes directed both outward and inward. For Paul, the, imagine the amount of anger for him at these, you know, these the, the moronic Jewish council and the these these dumb Roman leaders. They don't understand the good news of what Jesus has brought for them. They're so racist or they're so overly enmeshed in the political system that they can't see the good news of what God is doing fuming with this righteous sort of anger that's going on and maybe even it's sometimes not going to a righteous. it might have been an unhealthy anger at them for some of us in this experience you know we get angry at what we're going through we think this is ridiculous we think that the quarantine this is costing us millions Why don't we get ahead of this on the first day? Why did we fire the pandemic team? The the, the isolation, being trapped with kids or isolated by ourselves or with a roommate or spouse, getting angry at the, the little things like I need a haircut or I just want a latte. I need to get back to work. The anger overwhelms us in the face of the dark night of the suffering that we're going through. And for Paul and us, the anger turns from being angry at ourselves and angry at others to simply being angry at God, which is going just, where are you right now? that anger then turns into bargaining in the third step. We start praying prayers of bargaining, please God, or going into the maze of, if only I had done this, or what if, if this would have happened, statements For Paul, it might have looked like if I hadn't gone to the temple or gone at that hour, maybe next time when they bring me before the trial, if I say this or that, there's a bargaining, that maze of ifs and what ifs that he goes through. For us, the bargaining was maybe if we quarantine for one week, for two weeks, for three weeks, maybe maybe at this point, maybe if just a couple more, maybe things will be back to normal sooner rather than later. When we begin to realize that there's no bargaining to be done, but we're stuck where we're at for now, it comes into a place of depression. Is there any point to my grief and my loss? Is there any point of going on at all? For Paul, what's the use? They're gonna kill me. Even if they don't kill me, it's so clear that both the Roman leaders and the Jewish leaders have shown they have no interest in the way of Jesus. Why am I wasting my time with this? Why go on at all? It seems as though God's left me. For us, it's like, what's the use? How how can I pay rent? How will my business or the businesses survive? How how will I move on in the midst of those that I've known dying? It seems as though like Paul, that God's left us. You see these stages of grief of the human experience are likely what Paul has gone through and went through. They're clearly what many of us are experiencing. The invitation is just to name where you're at and where you've been. For some of you just to acknowledge that maybe you've been stuck in denial or stuck in anger about this. Others of us that we've just settled into depression and we don't know where to go from here. For me this week, the reality of um, moving from each of these stages has, has has gone on, I think earlier for some parts of it. The thing that hit me over this past week was coming to terms with this online service thing being the way that it might be for the the next chunk of this year, settling into just the loss of gathering together as the, as the, the people of Jesus, of teaching the Bible, not just as a Podcast video feed that we're all gathering around, which is still. Do not get me wrong. I love that we have this technology, but it is not the same. And I'm 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 coming to terms where I just realized I was in a denial stage for a while of almost kind of like you know um, this is okay and it's just a, you know a little thing and the novelty of it began to wear off and I got angry and then bargaining where if we do this for a few more weeks then we can move to some kind of thing like this and then just settling into a depression that hit me last night. And just having to work through this, of just okay, this is where we are, and this this may not be for you. It's probably maybe part, maybe it is online, you know, the gathering thing or, or or community being online, or a loss of work or furlough, or or you having lost someone, or just the the scariness of we don't know what the future is going to look like. These stages, we we just we I think this is the invitation to name where we're at, and I uh, and. and I don't think I'm, I'm pulling too much out of this passage to assume that Paul is, is with us in this. See, for Paul though, and for us with this grief and loss, the, the question then turns to what hope is there beyond denial, anger, bargaining, and depression? What hope is there on the other side? And that is exactly what Paul finds as we continue in verse twenty, verse 11. We continue in verse 11. This is the following night, the Lord stood by him. The Lord stood by him. I, I can't... Downplay. If you read through the book of Acts in big chunks at a time, and you've been reading, I sat down and uh, we just read from back at the beginning of chapter 20 all the way through to 23 this week to kind of get myself ready and just see how this comes together. There is this emotional drive that it's building up and building up and the tension and the tension and the weight of what Paul's going through develops and builds and builds. And at this moment here in verse 11, it just... You should do it this week, just read through it and watch the moment that that following night that the Lord stood by him. It is this moment where the story takes a new shape and takes a new form, where Jesus, though he felt so absent over the past few chapters, now is physically present with Paul in his grief and loss. And the reminder here is that this Jesus who's physically present, this is not before his death. This is Jesus years after his resurrection, after his ascension to the right hand of God, dwelling in his presence, that, that Paul is experiencing Jesus as Jesus currently is now, resurrected, but still available to us. You see, the good news of the resurrected Jesus being with Paul here is that he is present with us. Question is why isn't this presence our felt experience? In uh, The Shattered Lantern by Ronald Rollheiser, Uh, the subtitle being Rediscovering the Felt Presence of God is absolutely recommended reading. He says, the struggle to experience God is not so much one of God's presence or absence as it is one of the presence or absence of God in our awareness. Do you catch that? The struggle to experience God, or to, we can say in this passage, to experience Jesus is not so much one of his presence or absence as much as it is our awareness to his presence or absence. The presence or absence of our awareness, better said. God is always present, but we are not always present to God. You see, it's no coincidence to me that Jesus is present to Paul. And Paul is now seeing him, experiencing him, he's physically present after a whole twenty four hour period in isolation, of silence and solitude. See the reality is again that as Rollheiser goes on to say that constant distraction in our lives can block us from ever realizing the presence of God actually being with us. So the question is, how is the resurrected Jesus present to us today? Though this happens to Paul, this doesn't seem to be the normal way that Jesus is present to Paul throughout the or, or to anyone in the church. There are moments of visions and dreams and Jesus appearing before people, but it is not the status quo. Similarly, it's not the status quo for many of us today. That's not to say it doesn't happen. But Jesus is more often present to us and to his people in prayer, in studying scripture, in community with one another, when we observe communion, the Lord's supper, but also, like I just said, in dreams and in visions. And as we see here, that oftentimes those things come, an experience of Jesus comes after a prolonged period in silence and solitude. And the thing is, is like like Roheiser was just saying, it's not that Jesus is present in any of those things necessarily, but our awareness to his presence as meeting us through the Holy Spirit in those things. You singing worship songs is not enough if you are constantly distracted in the midst of your day. You hastily reading Bible verses is not going to give you the experience of Jesus that is necessary in the midst of your grief and loss. But it's slowing down to be attentive to the presence of God. There's there's, there's other... We, we bring this up in the Q&A. There's more that we can talk about here as well, how to bring our attention to this. But for Paul, I, I just... I again, you might think I'm overreading into this and that's okay. To me, I just see that this is there is something to be said for the fact that Jesus makes his appearance to Paul the following night. It could have been five minutes after he was locked in the prison cell, but it is the following night that Jesus finally appears. The hope for Paul, the hope for Collective Church, for you and me in our collective grief is an experience, an experience of the presence of Jesus that comes not in the absence of us being out in our normal day, but actually it's when we're locked up, we're able to stop long enough. When we are overwhelmed with our anger and bargaining and depression and fear and anger, all of those things come together. That when that is the process of what we're going through and we've been and we've allowed ourselves and named and identified ourselves in that place long enough that we are able to actually be able to listen and see him in a profound new way. And in his presence, we find the next stage of grief, which is acceptance. Let's continue. Again, in 11, it's just. we'll start from the beginning. The following night, the Lord stood by him, that physical presence with Paul, and Jesus speaks to him and says, take courage. He says, take courage. Now, we're in our Take Heart series. This take courage here is the same word. It's tharseo in the Greek that, that Luke's writing and that we've been seeing over and over again. And it's translated as take courage here. Um, I, I'm not going to make qualms with the ESV for translating it that way. And because it's the same, take courage, take heart, it can be translated either way. And in this case, I think the courage brings out a little bit more. But all that to say that this take heart, this tharseo word that he that Jesus tells Paul to do, to take heart, is a call to boldness. Like we've said in the past, it's don't be afraid. It is to be firm or resolute in the face of danger or adverse circumstances. See, over the past seven weeks that the, the connecting point between Jesus standing by him and saying, take heart, come together. And, and this has been true, and I'm just now pointing it out to you that over the past seven weeks, the call to take heart has happened at the crossover space between grief, the presence of grief and the presence of Jesus. And that Jesus's presence in the presence of grief is the, the crossover space of take heart. If you're a visual learner like me, we'll picture the circle, right? two circles here a venn diagram is that for most of our lives we get forced into these moments where we are in the presence of grief circle we live and exist in this place and this is not uh, something that is sold to the, the Christian tradition or, or, or uh, experience. This is a human experience as we go into the circle, the presence of grief in our lives. And we have seen over and over again people in that space. We have had the grief of the paralyzed man in the grief of sin, the bleeding woman in the grief of her sickness and malady, the uncertain disciples in the grief of the defeat of what was about to come, the scared disciples on the Sea of Galilee in the grief of loneliness and loss. In Bartimaeus last week, week in the grief of blindnessness and uh, blindness and aimlessness and now here Paul the grief of hopelessness each of these people have been in the presence of grief and the take heart statement comes only when the presence of Jesus crosses over into the presence of grief. And it is in that crossover space. It is not them leaving the presence of grief and going over to the take heart space with Jesus. It is when Jesus is physically present with them in their grief that take heart, that new reality, that crossover space that we could call take heart becomes possible. See, the take heart statement of Jesus is that in your the presence of Jesus, the paralyzed man, though in the grief of sins, finds forgiveness in the crossover. The bleeding woman finds that her faith has made her well, that the uncertain disciples hear that Jesus has overcome the world, that, that, it, that the, the scared disciples on the Sea of Galilee, that, that Jesus is with them. Do you see that each time that take heart is not something that happens in the absence of grief? but in the presence of grief. And it is only possible when the presence of Jesus comes to us in the presence of grief. Each of the take heart moments come when these things invade, when Jesus invades this space. And this is where I would argue the fifth stage of grief, like I said a moment ago, acceptance. Acceptance is only possible through the presence of Jesus meeting us in the presence of grief. It's only possible through Jesus. You see, without the presence of Jesus in the presence of grief, I'm going to keep saying it over again. I'll try to stop. <laughs> I'm just realizing. I'm just like, quit saying presence of grief. Um, w- w- without that crossover where Jesus meets us in that space, we actually cannot find acceptance. We can only find resignation. Because there is no new thing in breaking the grief. We are simply stuck on that space in that circle. You see, we can't find acceptance of our suffering. We can only find resignation. This is just how the world is. The world is chaos. Viruses kill. Economies fail. Jobs are taken. The world is a dark, chaotic place. We are all star stuff. We are just thrown out among the galaxy, and death comes for each of us. There's nothing you can do about it. So you might as well just resign yourself to that reality and just get used to it and maybe find some peace on the other side. That is not acceptance. That's resignation. See, the message of Christianity though, is that resignation is not where we are meant to stay in that almost depressive state, but actually an acceptance that comes as we take heart. That because Jesus is with us in our grief and loss, our sin and sickness, our defeat and loneliness, our blindness and hopelessness, peace is able to come not just because Jesus is now with us as the resurrected King. But because of Jesus' cross and death, Jesus took those things into and on him. That he took on our sin, he took on our sickness, he took on our blindness, our defeat, our loneliness, our hopelessness. That Jesus' death was him not just standing by us, but him standing in the place of us, in the place of grief. And that by his resurrection, three weeks ago, back to Easter... Easter is the historical proclamation that those griefs, those sorrows, those things, though present now, though we are in the crossover space, the take heart space now will not be forever. And that is why we can take heart. Only the resurrected Jesus can move us out of denial, out of anger, out of bargaining, out of depression, not into just resignation, a continuation of those things, but rather true acceptance that we can take the suffering of this world because we know that the suffering of the world is not all that there is is and that there is a God who is working something in the midst of it this is the message of Christianity that take heart is possible because of Jesus's resurrection because of his death and resurrection but we're not done yet because what happens here is that Jesus not only gives Paul and you and I the ability to accept suffering and grief and loss but actually to move what David Kessler introduced a couple decades ago as the sixth stage of grief meaning Continue where he says again the following night the lord stood by paul and says to him take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in jerusalem so you must also in rome jesus says take heart as you testified to the facts about me in jerusalem you must testify also in rome quite simply jesus is saying to paul not just take heart it's you know you're going to die tomorrow <laughs> you know like have fun sorry you know this is how it's going to go he actually says this is not the end for you. There is more to come and there are greater works to be done. He uses this language of testify or to bear witness. You can, if you want to this week, watch this little word study video from the Bible Project that just unpacks what we mean when we say witness because it's, it's a whole sermon in and of itself. But that little five minute video is just incredible. So you can watch that. But just to try to quickly summarize, to testify, to bear witness, it's a, it's a legal term. It is to witness to the facts of what has happened. As Jesus says, to witness to the facts about me, oh my goodness, here it is again. The reality of the resurrection in Jesus is that we are not dealing with something that just happens in your heart, but the facts about what has happened here. It is both the objective historical death and resurrection and the ascension and reign and rule of Jesus Christ and also the subjective experience of the individual. What I mean by that is when you go back and you read 22 and 23 this week and you watch Paul's testifying of what's going on, is he constantly is going back and forth between what has historically happened in Jesus and Paul's personal experience of it. Might I argue that this is what the church is called to do as well, is we are called to testify to the facts of Jesus, both the objective reality of what happened 2,000 years ago, but through the lens of what that has meant for us like it did for Paul. And this is like I just said, I'm not just calling you to this. This is the biblical calling of the church. This is what we do as a community of faith. Back in the beginning of Acts chapter four, verse 33, it's one of the things that the church does. We as a community share all that we have in common. We gather for worship. We study the scriptures. We care for the poor. We commit ourselves to pastors and we raise up deacons to serve one another. This is what's going on. And all of that is so that we might testify and witness to what Jesus has done. This is the great calling that we have, that in that take heart space, we are left in the suffering world so that we might witness to those that are suffering. But as we close, I just want to spend a little more time on these two words that we just read. That what Paul says, or Paul hears from Jesus is, for you as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. That word, you must, is one word in the Greek. It is this word, day D-E-I. It translated uh, as as must here or as it is necessary. As you testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary that you also do it in Rome. As you trace the use of day of must, or it is necessary, however we want to translate that word, throughout the book of Acts, and uh, through acts prequel written by the same author luke's gospel the day word must or it is necessary is always used always 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 used to talk about god's divine plan and design So Jesus would walk around saying that he must preach the kingdom. At one point, he says that he must heal a suffering woman. He talks about how the Passover lamb must be sacrificed. And at the hallmark moment of Luke's gospel, Jesus says that the Son of Man must suffer and die and be raised. Throughout the book of Acts, we find Paul saying that he must suffer for Jesus' namesake, that he must stand trial before Caesar, that he must witness in Rome as we've just read here you see this must statement over paul becomes the basis for paul's boldness in the coming season the final chapters of the book of acts when he gets caught up in the storm in the mediterranean the boat is in danger of falling over he is able to tell these other sailors that are with him non- christians those that don't identify as followers of jesus to literally take heart it's not the tharseo word but don't miss the connection here that you have the one who heard take heart from jesus you're going to Rome, that in the midst of the moment when it seemed like Rome was not going to happen, he was able to speak to those who weren't Christians to take heart with him because of his assurance of what Jesus had told him. I believe one of the reasons that God's been telling us to take heart over these past few weeks is so that we might like Paul on that ship on the Mediterranean, tossed to and fro, that we might call out to the other sailors with us in this storm, our neighbors, our friends, and call for them to take heart. In Jesus, there is hope in this moment. But to go back to the must, the surprising reality in this is the relation to what is necessary throughout Luke and Acts to the day, the must word, is that it very often connects to suffering, to loss, and to grief. You see, this must statement that Paul hears this day to go to Rome, though being a source of strength in the midst of the Mediterranean would ultimately lead to Paul's beheading by the crazed Emperor Nero in Rome in 68. Him saying, as you testified in Jerusalem, you're also going to testify in Rome is also that as it's gone for you in Jerusalem in suffering and persecution and all this that's going on, so it's going to be for you in Rome all the way to the point where Paul would be murdered. And don't mishear me in saying in this that God did these things to Paul, that Paul, that God is the one that that killed Paul. And so that's what he means by it is necessary. That's not what I'm saying at all. But at the same time, we can't miss the reality that suffering does not get in the way of God's plan for your life, for Paul's life. But that in fact, God manipulates and utilizes suffering to actually turn it into the good of his people. As John Milton described in his book, Paradise Lost, he compares the evils and suffering of history and all that we're going through as a compost pile. Uh, m- my wife in, in our little garden is all about the compost pile. Everything that can go in there has to go in there. And so over the course of the week, there's we're throwing into this little you know bucket that we have in our kitchen and we dump out every single week, uh, this mix of decaying substances where uh, uh, Milton talks about we don't put it in there, but uh, animal extra you know uh, potatoes that would be bad uh, for the kitchen. but we put in it you know potato skins, um, uh, eggshells or, or banana peels, um, apple core we put whatever we need in there. And, and when I open that up on you know Thursday and I dump it out, uh, and it is it, it's, it's not a great smell. However, when that's covered with dirt and left for time, it ends up smelling wonderful and actually what was dead and decaying actually brings this life to the soil. It's a natural fertilizer. It's tremendously well suited specifically for growing fruit and vegetables, but we have to be willing to wait years in some cases for some things to decay and break down and bring even greater amounts of fertilization. Milton's point was that the worst events in human history, those that we cannot understand, like the uh, beheading of Paul or like COVID-19, those things that we cannot understand, that somehow in the mystery of God's wonderful work, it is part of this eternal, it is necessary plan, not that he is dictating it or doing it, but that even these greatest evils will end out for good. And this is true, and we can hold on to that because this is what Christianity is built around in Jesus's cross that out of the greatest evil, the world has ever seen the death of the perfect, not only man, but the death, the murder of the second person of the Godhead of Jesus himself came the greatest good. Or as Jesus put it in John chapter 12, unless the seed dies, it will be alone, a single seed, but its death will produce much fruit out of suffering and death of Paul. The church was emboldened and continued. Rome ultimately being converted to a Christian state. Out of the suffering and death of Jesus, salvation and forgiveness and a new kingdom and a new community is made available. We do not yet know what is growing in the midst of the suffering and pain. But it is the must, the day, the necessary thing that God is casting dirt upon so that something greater might grow. See Paul hearing his day, his it is necessary. It emboldened him to take heart through the highs and the lows of his life, to find meaning, to find meaning in his suffering, to go back to that 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 final stage in our grief and loss is meaning. This comes together in Second Corinthians chapter eleven, where the Apostle Paul wrote. He just details what his life has been like. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. He doesn't talk about how people literally thought he was dead and dragged him out of the city and left him there, but he got up and walked back in and kept preaching. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. He cannot, he cannot be broken down. A night and day I was adrift at sea. He doesn't talk about it here, but after uh, washing up on the beach, he was bit by a snake. Everybody watched to see if he would die, but he didn't, on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from all these other things, the daily pressure on my anxiety for all of the churches that I love and pastor, he says, in the midst of all this, For the sake of Christ, I am content. I accept, or I take heart in, is a way that we could paraphrase it. I take heart in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that weakness and strength he goes on to talk about is because in that weakness, it is the fertilizer for the glory of Jesus to be seen more regularly, more often. You see, for us, suffering, for many of our friends, ends in resignation. This is just what the world is. It's just dead banana peels. It's just just dead leaves and eggshells. It's just suffering. It's just empty, and so we might as well just get used to the smell. The posture of the Christian that is predicated and based on the resurrection of Jesus is that in the space of grief, that the presence of the resurrected Jesus allows us to take heart. It allows us to, for the sake of Christ, be content and accept it all. That option is before you and me today. It's an option that's available to us as well. Both the ability to accept suffering, but also through Jesus to find meaning that transforms our suffering. The question is whether or not we'll receive it. That's the invitation that's set before you today. Is whether you are content to stay on the stages of the grief cycle, or just to settle into resignation, or to hear a take heart that is available only and solely through the resurrected Lord Jesus. And so the thing is, is that you and I may not hear a really clear you must from Jesus. He may not show up in your bedroom tonight and say, you know, this is, you know, this is how many years you've got. This is what to expect. Or you're going to get through at least COVID-19. You may not hear that. But as I've been pondering on that, what have I, what have I heard? and i would simply just say that it calls us back to each moment and each day to be present to what we have that each morning that i wake up i may not know what tomorrow holds but at least for tomorrow at least for today and at least for the hour that i have right now at least for this sermon right now i know that this is a you must moment that this is my it is necessary moment this is my day day <laughs> and so i take that to wake each morning and just ask from a place of communion with Jesus, of his physical, him being present with me, from a boldness that is based on his presence being with me in the presence of all that I might go through this day, to just take heart and ask, what must I testify to this day? To whom must I testify? In what situations? And how must I situate myself to testify? To bear witness to the goodness of the Jesus whose resurrection means that grief and loss do not get the final word. What is the day of today? What is my Rome? And so then as I go through my day, whether butterflies and flowers or dead leaves and banana peels, whether parties in my name or pandemics, whether the birth of my son or as life goes on one day, my own death, that in the midst of each and every single one of those things, the resurrection of Jesus and his presence with me allows me, it allows me to take heart to accept even the greatest severity of grief and loss, and not only to accept it, but find meaning in it. Because just like for Jesus, that the greatest life came out of his own death, that so too in my suffering, there is a greater life that is coming. And I get to bear witness by not just speaking about the Jesus who rose over sufferings, but actually walking through those sufferings myself. Let's pray.